Although, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when it happens. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. It's too cerebral! We're trying to make a movie here, not a film! You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Damn, you're supposed to be the agent, huh? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Welcome to the very first episode of the new and improved, rebranded, in the mouth of darkness chatcast. I am your host, Brad Gullickson, the mouth dork, and joining me is... Lisa Gullickson, the wife dork. What's going on, Lisa? Oh, nothing. Just the it mod dorks branching out, starting a whole new channel. Our wonderful informative, inspiring interviews with such filmmakers as Issa Lopez, Larry Cohen, Jim Cummings, now has its own home. Dork's so nice, you can subscribe to us twice. Oh, you've already come up with a slogan. Uh, yeah, I, I I, think in a past life I was a madman. <laughs> so we're kicking this new series off with a bunch of interviews that we did in Park City, Utah at the Sundance Film Festival in January. Yes, it was such an honor for Brad and I to represent the In the Mouth of Dorkness dorks at such a prestigious event. Yeah, it's honestly, it's incredibly surreal to have boots on the ground at a place that not only brought Quentin Tarantino to the world, but last year, Boots Riley, right? Like, yeah. A, a, a crazy, influential filmmakers are bursting from Sundance. I've always read about it. I've always witnessed it from afar. And, and now here we are in these theaters, seeing these films for the first time, incredibly surreal and, you know, emotional. It blows my mind. I, I can't even deal. Yeah. So, okay. Here we are. First episode of our new Chatcast series. And I wanted to kick it off strong. I love this conversation that we have with Alexander O. Felipe, the director of 7852, one of our favorite films from uh, past Fantastic Fest. Yes, all about the psycho shower scene. Yeah, uh, it's a great film. Like if you are excited about conversation and not just, you know, talking about movies via tweets. Like you're like us, big dorks. Yeah, big dorks. And you want to have longer conversations with your favorite films. Uh, Felipe is the guy to be following. And his new film, Memory, The Origins of Alien, it, it blows 7852 out of the water, in my opinion. It tracks the DNA of the chestburster scene all the way back to the ancient Egyptian. Yeah. He's not messing around. He is not messing around. It's not just about talking uh, Dan O'Bannon and H.R. Giger and, you know, ties to Dune. It goes back to, yes, the Furies and ancient Egypt. And I, well, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil the conversation. Absolutely not. Spoiler free. <laughs> this was a really wonderful chat that we had in the press office on Main Street. I have never felt more official. They had... 
special coffee mugs that heated themselves. Uh, and yes, and the coffee was delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, but the conversation, it was clear to me from the get-go that Alexander is really excited to talk not only about his film, but just film in general. And his main purpose in life, it seems, is to talk about the larger conversation that we have around film. Absolutely right. And is there anything that is more in the vibe of what It Mod really is? Than what he's doing, yeah, for sure. He is our god now. (laughs) Well, he might be just after this conversation. So there you go. Let's shut up and get on with it. Let's uh, let the listeners into the brain of Mr. Felipe, and we'll, we'll, we'll join you after the conversation. We feel in an extraordinarily good company because we really enjoyed your documentary. Uh, thank you. And um, our podcast that's connected with FSR yeah. is In the Mouth of Dorkness. So we <laughs> we like to get into things, and yeah. so do you, clearly. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, great. It's a great name. I thought where we could start was, yeah. right now, film conversation is so... Short, you know, it's tweets, <laughs> it's soundbite. Well, yeah. And here you come, and you're with your career, and you're sort of yeah. steering a long-form essay mm. uh, with each film. And mm. what's what started you down that path? So, oh man, I uh, that's a really uh, thank you for asking this question. I got to say this because this means a lot to me, and it's it's a it's a tough question to answer in a short amount of time because uh, this taps into everything that I do and everything that I'm about to do. Um, I'm very concerned about uh, the state of movies in the sense that, I'm not saying in the sense that there's still, of course, a lot of great movies being done. Mm -hmm. There will always be that. But in this, uh, for lack of a better word, in this age of content, um, I think we're starting to to lose track a little bit, perhaps, of the process of the great filmmakers. And um, and I'm talking the masters, the legends, the, you know, those who really have uh, created those those films that uh, have become treasures, you know, for us. And um, I, I, I think it's very important to take the time to understand what it what makes a movie like Alien or what makes a movie like Citizen Kane or you know you can go down the list Vertigo, uh, The Exorcist, which is my next project. Uh, what makes them great and how do these masters of, of of master filmmakers how do they work on their craft and how do they think? And what's amazing to me is that when you start really digging deep into the process of those masters, you realize that they don't think like other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like there's a, to me, there's a, there's a sense of urgency that this needs to be preserved. It needs to be preserved in a way that is not dry, that is not inaccessible, that is not just relegated completely to film studies. Mm-hmm. That, cause, and the, the, the reality is that I think most people, the general public, people who love movies, um, are probably a little bit intimidated by this idea of film studies, right? This idea that there's film scholars, that there's intellectuals, mm-hmm. that there's all this stuff. And so what I do is hopefully try to build a bridge between the general public and the idea of film studies. And, and that bridge is that I want to convey this infectious uh, passion that I have for cracking movies open 
and make people realize that this is really something that we can all do and that in fact that's the great thing about movies and in fact the great thing about art is that the, the deeper you go and the more you understand what those people are doing uh, the more fun movies become right and, you know yeah and, and, well, you know we come to like Sundance and it's all about the new you know what's premiering here what, sure what's coming up what's ex- and, and I feel sure. like conversation is so about the now we rarely look back sure so when I see something like memory or 7852 it's a revelatory experience thank you very much I appreciate that thank you memory kind of like deconstructs the DNA of the chessburster scene like as an idea, like yeah. tracing where the idea ca- came from. And the structure of your film has starts with like the zeitgeist, big picture idea, mm-hmm. mythical level, and right. then goes down so specifically to the instant this film is, the, the film is shot, and then opens back up again in a, like a really like satisfying way. And mm-hmm. I was just wondering where in the creative process hmm. do you fight, start finding that structure? Uh, this particular project has been very unique in the way that because uh, I'm big on structure you know I mean mm-hmm. I come from a dramatic writing background so to, to me structure and the script is everything you know if it doesn't work on paper it's sure as hell not going to work on uh, on the screen um, but what's very interesting about the making of memory is that I feel that a lot of the process of it came out of the unconscious um, and I had to trust that it was a, there was a real intuition about about where I had to go with this film to make this particular film about about well it is about the chestburster but it's a film it's a film about the resonance of myth and about our collective unconscious I mean let's face it it's a film about alien but it's it's a lot more than a film about right. alien right so um, so I had to follow the intuition that. This is not a scene that could be approached or structured in the same way that the shower scene in Psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a it's a different beast uh, altogether. Um, what what uh, intrigued me a lot initially was, uh, you know, the connection between the the chestburster and the uh, uh, Francis Bacon's three mm-hmm. uh, studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion blew my mind yeah uh, it's cool stuff <laughs> right it's it's cool stuff and it's one thing that you can just say oh yeah well you know this is just Ridley Scott putting one thing and you know just showing an image to Giger and 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 there's and and think no more about that but that's precisely what I'm trying to say is is it's all these things. The images resonate with certain artists for certain reasons. And those reasons are not necessarily conscious. They do come from the unconscious. Um, the, the, the fact that Dan O'Bannon and H.R. Giger met and the way that they met with, you know, through Dune and that they had the same preoccupations, that they were both working on their own Necronomicons, that they were both obsessed with H.P. Lovecraft and the fear of the unknown. Um, you know, all of those things... Uh, put together, uh, the parasitic wasps, the Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one way to look at it is you say, oh yeah, it's just a bunch of coincidence. Eh, well, okay, sure, fair enough. That's an argument to be made. Um, my argument is that is that when a movie like Alien becomes as successful as it did in 1979, um, that at a time when people were actually ready for the cute, cuddly, friendly alien, as Clark Wolf says uh, very early in the film. Um, So I want to look at this and say, why? Um, Why did this movie, against the grain and against the odds, become so successful? 
because it was presenting us with ideas and images that we, and I believe this very strongly, that we as a collective needed to process and work through, that 40 years later, we're still processing and working through and finally having a, a conversation about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 40 years later, which makes Alien extraordinarily contemporary mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a film. So, um, uh, so I, I don't know, I've just like my, my, train, my train of thought here. But, but we, uh, like... The thesis that you're making where it's just like society as a whole asks for art that answers questions. Yes. Like it parallels like, you know, the invention of, uh, you know, like in medicine or in invention, like two different people invented the telephone at the same time that's because exactly the world right. needed a telephone. That's exactly right. And, and that's and the same and the same thing happens with movies. I'll give you an example. Um, it's funny because I've never really heard people talk about this a whole lot. Regardless of where you stand politically, obviously we're in strange times. <laughs> yeah. um, and when I watched the movie version, the new movie version of It, oh. mm -hmm. um, I was struck by one thing. And that is the fact that the reason why, and this is my argument, the reason why It became... A, a smash hit, a smash uh, box office sensation uh, at this particular time is because it is, as I see it, it's an allegory of Trump's America. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to talk about the orange-haired clown. <laughs> right. right. But, but if you leave that aside, if you mm -hmm. put that aside, you are talking about a group of kids, a diverse group of kids who uh, are essentially torn apart by this figure and who, you know, the whole, the whole idea of the film is they need to find a way to stick together to defeat mm -hmm. that. Solidarity. This idea that America is being torn apart and this message that we need, that in fact we're not as divided as we think, but we need to stick together, resonated in a major way with audiences. Mm -hmm. I don't think people walked out saying, oh yeah, that's what's going on, <laughs> mm -hmm. but that's what it did. And I would certainly make the argument that if it had come out two years earlier, Mm. It probably would not have been the, the the sensation that it was at the box office. Mm -hmm. So, so the bottom line is, you, I think it's important to pay attention to those things, because I will even go further. I will even go one step further and say, 1979, if Dan O'Bannon had not been as Will Lynn says a stenograph to the larger song that Alien is, if he had not been connected to that resonance of this particular myth, somebody else would have had to do that mm. because we as a collective summoned that story. We needed that story to show up on the screen and we needed to process those images and those ideas. What's interesting about your film, or the first thing that struck me when, you know, from the title on is how much yeah. love and attention you give to Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. He tends to get uh, dismissed yeah. in the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, was he always going to sort of be... Uh, as strong a focus in your film? Not initially. That's the thing. But I, it's so talking about, talk about the unconscious. When so I was introduced to Diane O'Bannon mm -hmm. by Frank Pavich, who did uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. Uh, which, by the way, is another very poetic thing, right? Jodorowsky's Dune director introduces me to Diane O'Bannon. You know, like yeah. it's like woof, you know, goosebumps. <laughs> but I I was in L.A. with. Um, with Kerry, uh, my partner on uh, in, at Exhibit A and, and um, uh, producer, and um, uh, that morning when we woke up, we were going to drive to Diane's house in San Diego, and 
And I, I said, I said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but um, this encounter is going to change everything. Mm. I, I, you know, I had this kind of vision. I, I, I had a complete sense. And, and we showed up at her house and, you know, she, she had all these boxes <laughs> uh, opened and all these papers. And, she was ready. And, you know, and I'm looking at this and I'm like, and there's, you know, the screenplay for the original script for mm -hmm. memory. There's two versions of it. There's memory A and memory B, which are, you know, they're very tiny little scripts because um, they're unfinished. Um, storyboards from Ron Cobb and all these drawings from Dan and, I mean, different versions of the script, alternate endings, you know, like... Uh, there's a, a one note from Ron who said on a little napkin that is actually in the film. You, you can you can't read it, but it it's unreadable. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, the way he writes is unreadable, but you, you can you get a sense that it's kind of the first idea of like, oh, what if it comes out of the, of the chest? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These little just amazing <laughs> things, and I'm and I'm looking at all this and I'm like, oh my god, like this is it. You know, this is really this has to be about that. It has to be about really all of the stuff that was uh, bubbling in his, in his own process, in his own unconscious, since, um, well, quite frankly, since he was a kid, but, but tracing back to 1971 when he wrote that screenplay, uh, They Bite, which is an unbelievable script, by the way. I'd love to read it. <laughs> oh, well, I'm hoping that Diane will make it available at some point. And cool. the thing about They Bite, too, is if you... If you love and revere the thing, as I do, the Carpenter version of the thing, I will just say that there's a few things in they bite where you go, there's no way mm. that Carpenter did not read that screenplay. Mm. Oh, that's cool. That's Which is very interesting. Uh -huh. um, so I'll just, I'll just say that. All right. I'll just say that. Now I really but, want to read it. Yeah, it's really great. It's really great. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so at that point, it, it was clear to me that it needed to be an origin story and this idea that I was already really um, obviously very interested in the mythology of it and the roots and the Francis Bacon and the Greek Furies and all of that. Uh, it only made sense to, to go all the way back, all the way back to Dan O'Bannon, who is really the one who, who started it all. You know? But like so. this idea of like, okay, we're going to follow this idea back to its origins and you go yeah. to Egyptian myth and, and you know, yeah. and you dive into Giger's work and and yeah. all of that stuff. Like, there are just so many yeah. research rabbit holes yes. that you can totally yes. get lost down. And, yes. and how do you prioritize, like, okay, mm -hmm. where, like, because there's potentially no stopping point. Yeah, there's a lifetime of making this <laughs> For sure, for yeah. sure, yeah. Well, to me, uh, well, and this is where, you know, this is where I have to put on my, my you know, my dramatic writer hat mm -hmm. and, and, and go, what is the story of this film? You know, and it's not... It's not what is the story that fans or this fan would want to see versus that fan, because there are always going to be people who say, well, I want more of this or I want more of that. And what is the story of this film? The story of this film is still about the chestburster in the sense that the chestburster is the, is the moment. It is the moment of Alien the way that the shower scene is the moment of Psycho. It is the moment that, that everything led to it and and the moment had to work in order for Alien to, in fact, resonate with audiences. And so many things could have gone wrong. And so the reason that I have the opening sequence that I have, which I'm not going to spoil, uh, but the whole idea is that it is more than just a piece of material prop uh, that is coming out of the chest or a fake chest of John Hurt, that 
the argument is that the emergence of the chestburster in Alien is the emergence of, or the re-emergence of the Greek Furies uh, showing up on screen in 1979 to address uh, an unconscious patriarchal guilt that we need to work through as a society Mm -hmm. and to restore a balance that truly needs to be restored. Uh, and that's what the Furies do. I mean, so, you know, if you want to get really, really, really esoteric, then you wonder, well, are the Furies actually real? Do they really exist? Well, it's a force. It's like when I talk to Friedkin, you know, the, the, the Exorcist project I'm working on, you know, about the devil. He says, well, you know, the dev- you know he doesn't see the devil or, you know, I mean, he's talked to the, the Vatican Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the Vatican Exorcist doesn't see the devil as, you know, an, an actual physical being with horns and a tail. But it is, but it is a force. Uh, it is an energy that that happens to be, re- you know, that has to be reckoned with sometimes. And I think that what we do create, everything we do in life and everything we do as a collective creates a ripple effect. And so the, the furies come back through time, and they come back through mythology, through stories, through films. Uh, through things that we do in society uh, when there's something we do and there's a certain guilt that comes out <laughs> and we need to process that. And so, so I think that's the whole argument that, that, uh, that I make through, through memory. So before we leave, I don't, <laughs> don't want to stop this conversation without, you know, you go from psycho to alien, you're doing the exorcist next. Yeah. How are you moving from, you know, this subject to that subject to now the exorcist. It's very strange. Uh, once again, I mean, I, I cannot even tell you, like, I feel like I'm, I am guided in a way because the exorcist project was just as serendipitous. I was not planning on doing mm. this. I was at Sidges, the Sidges Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you guys the story already or not? No. no. That was just, uh, I just told you. <laughs> See, uh, my mind's already <laughs> fried. It's well, day two Sundays. of Sundance yeah. and I'm fried already. Um, I was at the Sidges Film Festival with 1752 and I was having lunch with Gary Sherman, who, you know, did and buried uh, and uh, Deathline uh, director, and uh, and then there's a voice behind me. It says, "Hey, Alex." Um, you know, I turn around and it's William Friedkin, and <laughs> and he says, "You know, I've heard so much about your film. I want you to, you know, just just come over here. I want to tell you some stories about Hitchcock." And I'm and I'm freaking out. I'm like, "What's <laughs> what's going on?" You know. So uh, so then you know he watched my film, loved it. Uh, he sent me an email. He says, "I want you to." you know, next time you're in LA, I want to buy you lunch. And, and then very quickly the conversation switched to the exorcist. And I, I felt he had, there was something, you know, and he gave me essentially an opportunity to, to make a family and said, look, it, it, just read my autobiography and if you find an angle, um, then, you know, let me know. And so I, I went back to him and I said, look, if I wanted to make a film about the exorcist, I want to do something completely different from what's been done before. I, I would want to use the Hitchcock Truffaut model of interviews and where, where we sit down for a period of days and we crack open The Exorcist and we talk about your process as a filmmaker. And so this, this turned into a four and a half day interview uh, with, with Friedkin and I'm still, and I'm still, you know, we're still communicating a lot and I'm still going to go back. And, um, and as a result, we didn't even talk, by the way, about special effects. Not once. But we talked about painting, we talked about classical music, about opera, about Citizen Kane, about his love for the Kyoto Zen Gardens, which he was in tears talking about mm. the Kyoto Zen Gardens. Um, I mean, 
if if you think that the stuff that you've seen from us is good, and thank you so much for for saying that you appreciate what we've done, wait until you see this project on The Exorcist because that's I mean, I that's uh, that one's uh, is, is going to be on a league well, of its own. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much for chatting with us. You're <laughs> doing you. things that I want to be seen. I want thank you I very want much participating in. It's amazing. So thank, thank you. you. Well, please, you know, spread the word. Please, <laughs> that's our plan. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. And there you have it. Not only did we get to talk about the movie that was at Sundance, Memory, but we also got a little taste of what he has coming down the pike, and it's delicious. Delicious and crazy. I love the idea of uh, Alexander O'Felipe and William Friedkin sitting down, Francois Truffaut, Alfred Hitchcock style. That's, oh my, like totally tantalizing. Sounds so fun. And do you think they're going to visit the steps? Do you think they're going to be in our... DC neighborhood? I bet you they've already done it, Lisa. Boo. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there you go. Our first episode of our new rebranded In the Mouth of Darkness chat cast, part of the Shallow Pocket project that we do in association with Film School Rejects. So you can head on over there and read our write-up of this conversation, as well as read my own review of the film in which I recreate the chestburster sequence in my own words. It's some of Brad's best. It's definitely some of my geekiest and nerdiest <laughs> and total, uh, you know, fanboyish. I think it's adorable. Unapologetic. So, Brad, what chat casts do we have coming up? Uh, next week, we will be talking with Paddleton director Alex Lehman, as well as Mark Duplass and Ray Romano. Yeah, guys, we're big time. <laughs> uh, and it, that's another good conversation that, that I don't need to tease you anymore because that's enough. Yes. So we want to thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to follow the It Modcast brand on Twitter at It Modcast. And more importantly, subscribe to us. That's right. Give us some reviews. Five stars only, please. Let us know how this conversation went. It went really well. <laughs> and we have to also give our thanks to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke on Twitter for providing our new Chatcast logo. Swanky. Very cool. I love it. And thanks to Billy Das at WB Das on Twitter for providing our intro music uh, this week. Yeah, our dorks are multifaceted. Yes. So there you go. Lisa, where, where can our, our friends, our new friends, follow you on Twitter? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Sidewalk Siren. You can follow my good friend, Brian Young, the Turtle Dork, at the Turtle Dork on Twitter. And I am Brad Gullickson. You can follow me at MouthDork on all social medias. And don't forget to follow my buddy, Darren Smith, at the Disco Dork on Twitter. And we already covered Billy, right? We did. WB Das on Twitter. Yes, that's correct. A dork so nice, I plugged him twice. Ooh, that sounds dirty. Okay. On that note, goodbye, guys. Good night. <laughs>